Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow roundtablers, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. The rest of us explore different aspects of the story so we can all understand it better. And this week, Valerie pitched Primal Fear as an example of a psychological thriller in order to understand what makes that particular subgenre tick. This 1996 film was directed by Gregory Hoblet from a screenplay by Steve Shagan and Anne Bitterman based on the 1993 novel by William Deal. It stars Richard Gere, Laura Linney, and a young Edward Norton in his first feature film role. Now we have an extra content warning today. This film revolves around the crimes of brutal murder and sexual abuse. Some of the clips included in today's episode contain strong language. Also, this is one of our episodes where, even more than usual, you will benefit from watching the film first. You'll want to feel the twist before Valerie breaks it down for you, so I recommend viewing it first. Now, Valerie will start us off by identifying the genre and providing a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Thanks, Leslie. So this is a psychological thriller, and it's the one that Sean recommends in the story grid, what uh, good editors know. The secondary genre, I'm leaning toward worldview revelation, but even that, I've got to say, it's not well developed. In the beginning hook, when Archbishop Rushman is murdered, Martin Vale recognizes the opportunity for public notoriety, and Martin Vale's a lawyer, and decides to take on the high-profile case defending the suspect, Aaron Stampler, even though his story is rice paper thin. In the middle build, Martin's defense that there was a third man in the room at the time of the murder is failing, and he's losing the case. However, when he learns that the archbishop forced Aaron to make sex tapes, and that Aaron's personality has splintered because of it, he must decide whether to try and introduce the video into the case, and demonstrate insanity, or continue with the third man defense. He decides to manipulate Janet, the opposing counsel, into admitting the video. In the ending payoff, when the videotape is introduced in court and Roy appears, and Roy is Aaron's alter ego, and having Roy appearing means that Martin will win his case, Martin must decide whether or not to admit that he manipulated Janet. He does admit it, but he sees nothing wrong with it since, in his opinion, justice was served. However, he discovers that there actually is no dual personality at play here and that Roy has been manipulating him all along. Thanks, Valerie. There's a lot going on in this film and you've really summed that up beautifully. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your goals in studying the psychological thriller this season? Yeah, well, for season five, I am going to study the psychological thriller because that's what I'm writing right now. And although I've read them in the past, I haven't actually studied them from a story grid point of view, and that's a whole different thing. So what I want to do is pull them apart and really see what makes them tick, as you said a minute ago. How are they the same or different from other thriller genres? What things do I need to keep in mind as I write my own psychological thriller? Now, my study is leading me down a really fascinating path. Stories, as we know, evolve over time, and without initially realizing it, I stumbled upon a genre that is in the process of a significant shift. I'll talk about that more in upcoming episodes, but for now, we'll look at primal fear since that's the example that Sean gave in the Story Grid book. As a thriller, this film has all the elements that you would expect it to have, and I've done a full editor six core question analysis that you can go to the show notes and find. Here on the podcast, what I want to do is highlight some of the key points. But even before I get into that, I want to take a giant step backwards for just a minute and look at genre. I'm discovering that when it comes to genre, writers fall into two main categories. Those who start out with a favorite genre that they want to write in, and those who start out with an idea 
and then have to figure out either which genre that story falls into or which genre will help them tell it best. So how do we do that? What makes Primal Fear a thriller rather than a courtroom crime story? And within the thriller genre, what makes it a psychological thriller rather than a legal thriller? First, let's look at the thriller versus the crime story. Since the thriller genre is an amalgam of action, crime, and horror, there's obviously going to be overlap in the obligatory scenes and conventions. And it's easy to confuse primal fear for a courtroom crime story because there's been a crime, the protagonist is a lawyer, and a significant part of the story takes place in a courtroom. Now, the film version of primal fear is quite a bit different than the novel. And the novel, if you read it, absolutely feels more thrillerish than this film version. But when you look at these two genres, it's easy to think that the global spectrum of value here in Primal Fear is justice and injustice, and that the core emotion is intrigue. But as soon as you scratch the surface a bit, you'll see that the core value and the core emotion are actually different. This story, in my opinion, is less about the crime and more about the protagonist, which is ironic, given that there isn't a clear or fully developed internal genre in the film. I see the internal genre as worldview revelation because the information we learn in the last scene is a revelation. (laughs) It causes Martin to learn something about himself that he didn't know before. His worldview of himself shifts. Everyone else has his number. Janet certainly knows what kind of man he is, and so does John Shaughnessy, and of course Roy does too. But Martin doesn't have a clear view of himself until the end. Now let's look at the global spectrum of value. Primal Fear is really about Martin Vale and his descent into damnation, and we don't truly understand that until the very last scene. If we're not actively watching this film as writers and looking at the story structure, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that this story is about justice and whether it's just to condemn a man with a mental illness to death for a crime he isn't aware that he's committed. See, this is where the editor's six core questions come in handy. This is how and why Sean developed them in the first place. If you look at the 15 core scenes, you can see them shifting on the life damnation value rather than the justice injustice value. Now we'll look at the core emotion. Primal fear is an intriguing story. There's no doubt about that. But we're not really trying to solve the crime. And that sounds ironic, I know. There's no doubt that the suspect committed the crime. The only doubt is whether he is sane or insane. Does he have a split personality or not? Is Aaron aware of what Roy, his alter ego, has done? So, yes, Primal Fear, the film version, borrows very heavily from that core emotion of crime. Uh, And it's also exciting. The, The novel, again, feels much more like a thriller than this film version. The intrigue we experience is not about who done it, which is what we would do in a crime story. It's about Aaron's sanity. Now we have to look at the hero, victim, villain. A key element of the thriller is that the protagonist becomes the victim, and this doesn't happen with crime stories. Martin Vale has been Roy's victim all along. We and Martin just don't realize it until the last scene. Okay, quickly now I'll look at the psychological thriller versus the legal thriller. To determine which genre the story falls into, We look at these big concepts like global spectrum of value, core emotion, key distinctions between similar genres. But when you get to these subgenres, it's it's tricky. It really is. William Deal could have written Primal Fear as a crime story or a legal thriller. It would have worked. But the thing he's exploring here is the protagonist's descent into damnation through his interaction with a man who may or may not be sane. Martin Vale is an egotistical, manipulative, attention-seeking lawyer in the film. He knows that he's arrogant, but he sees that as a charming personality quirk, and Roy uses that trait against him. When Sean was sorting thrillers into subgenres, his initial thought about the psychological thriller is that it involves a medical diagnosis of some sort. It's all about whether the villain is clinically insane And if they were evaluated by someone in the medical profession, would they be or could they be diagnosed with a mental illness? This is why he offers Primal Fear as an example of the psychological thriller. Frances McDormand's character diagnoses Aaron as having a split personality. Of course, whether this is true or not is never definitively answered. There are definitely two personas, Aaron and Roy, 
And Roy is definitely manipulating Martin Vale and Molly, but even when Roy says there never was an Aaron, it's kind of hard to know whether to believe him. So understanding the distinctions between these genres and subgenres is easier when you're looking at a completed film or a completed novel. That's why it's so important to study lots of different genres. There really is no other way to fully understand how this works. So then when an idea pops into your head, you already have a foundational knowledge of the genres and you have a list of examples. There is absolutely, unfortunately, <laughs> no substitute for this kind of study. So now what are the key lessons we can learn about psychological thrillers from Primal Fear? First, let's look at the hero, victim, and villain. In this case, we have clear hero, victim, and villain roles that are constantly shifting from character to character. They shift so much that we're always asking ourselves who the hero, victim, and villain is. And personally, I find that fascinating. That's really interesting to me. Hard to pull off, but fascinating. And of course, this is one of the things that helps create narrative drive. Martin Vale is established as the hero. He's our protagonist who is flawed and unlikable, but he's also the victim, as he must be in a thriller. Aaron is simultaneously the villain of the crime and the victim of abuse. The archbishop is the victim of the murder, but he's also the villain where the altar boys and Linda are concerned. Pinheiro is twice victimized by authorities, presumably because of his villainous behavior, but he is a hero to his community. John Shaughnessy is a hero to all the people calling him for help, but he is definitely a villain where Martin is concerned. Janet, as the prosecutor, is a force of antagonism for Vale, but she's also a victim for Shaughnessy and Yancey. Since we eventually realize that Roy is a cold-blooded killer, Janet is also a hero to the people for trying to put him away. So with these fluid roles, everyone is manipulating everyone else. The possible exception here is Janet. She's calling the others out on their BS and she's holding a mirror up to them and showing them who they are, but she's not actively manipulating anyone. Now, because of these shifting roles, we have a number of two-faced characters, people who appear to be one way publicly, but another way privately. The archbishop is both a religious man and pillar of the community and a child abuser. Aaron is an innocent altar boy and a serial killer. Shaughnessy both keeps and breaks the law, and so on. Martin Vale, who is utterly convinced of his own righteousness, right to the bitter end, is as two-faced as the rest. Everyone sees it but him. In public, he gives speeches about his client's innocence until proven guilty. He reprimands a cop for calling Aaron the butcher boy. He seeks public attention and pontificates to the journalist at every opportunity. But in private, he refers to Aaron as the butcher boy and says that Aaron's bullshit story is now our bullshit story. He makes multiple attempts to manipulate Janet with varying degrees of success. We also have an unaware protagonist here, which I've alluded to already. Martin Vale does not see himself for who he really is. Everyone around him can see it and they use it to their advantage, but he's blind to it. He chooses to believe that he's a stand-up guy. Sure, he knows that he likes the public attention and the money that he gets, but he believes that he is nonetheless a champion for the oppressed. His arrogance is his Achilles heel, but he believes it's a charming quirk of his personality and says as much to Janet. When he first meets Aaron, he says, you know who I am. I'm what they call a big shot attorney. Well, of course, Aaron slash Roy knows who he is, but he plays dumb. He uses it against Martin Vale. Valerie, I just, can I interrupt you for a second? I have a question. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. So it came to me as you were talking that I realized in this specific example, the sanity of the person that we're questioning isn't our protagonist. So that was just an interesting thing to me. So in a psychological thriller, it seems to hinge around whether someone is sane or insane, but it doesn't necessarily need to be the protagonist. Is that right? Aha. This is exactly the rabbit hole I started to fall into when I started to study psychological thrillers and I was tying myself in knots and it led me to, you know, send out an SOS call to Sean because 
that's the kind of thing you can do when you're a story grid editor. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and initially, <laughs> initially, in days of yore, back in the 80s and 90s, what they were looking at was the psychological profile of the villain and whether the villain was sane or insane. But one of the things about the psychological thriller, especially now as it's changing, is that the hero, victim, and villain roles keep changing characters. So if you think about Gone Girl, you don't really know who the villain is or who the villain actually turns out to be is different than who we thought it was at the beginning or who we're led to believe it is. So this is part of the shift in the psychological thriller. It was the psychological profile of the villain. Now it's possibly also the protagonist or all of the characters in the story. That's part of the shift that I tapped into. So here in Primal Fear, it's the villain because this is from before the shift starts to take place. So this is exactly the thing that I'm going to start looking at in the other films that I pitch for the rest of the podcast. Make sense? Yeah. So that's super interesting to me that you could follow a genre through time and see those changes. And those those changes are what we'd call innovations, right? This is innovating on the conventions. Right. In response to society and what's happening in our world today. Changing times. Things may have seemed a little bit more black and white, good and bad to people in the early 90s compared to today. Yeah. Oh, this is fascinating stuff. All right. So in the beginning hook, Vale tells the journalist that people think defense attorneys are creeps because they defend creeps. Then he says that he doesn't care if his client is guilty or innocent and he doesn't even ask. Compare this with another scene with the journalist later in the film when they're sitting in the bar. This time, rather than being a piece of bravado, Vale is giving a confession of sorts, which is in keeping with the rest of the film. But who does he confess to? It's a journalist, that is, the public. But he threatens to sue the journalist if he actually uses it. He says that he chooses to believe that some good people do bad things because when he worked for Shaughnessy, he did something illegal, but, you know, he's a good guy, right? Therefore, not all crimes are committed by bad people. His big aha moment about himself, his big confession, is that he's a good guy, doing the right thing for the right reason. He truly believes this to be true. Going into the ending payoff, he still doesn't understand that everything he does is selfish and it's all about him and he's really defending himself. So he's completely convinced of his own superiority, legally and morally, that when he's caught off guard by the link to the Scarlet Letter, he blames his staff for not doing their jobs. He says that he believes Aaron is innocent, which is quite a shift from his initial comments that innocence or guilt is irrelevant. I mean, that's why the last scene is such a shock to him and by extension to the audience. We have been as blinded as Vale when it comes to Aaron. We haven't understood that Roy has been manipulating Vale the whole time. Hey, hey, Valerie, why do you think they shifted his attitude on that? I mean, it just seems so odd that Martin's only redeeming value, or rather his character constant, at least to me, is that it doesn't really matter to him if they're guilty or innocent. I mean, it's kind of frustrating that it shifted. Yeah. You know what, Jari? I agree with you. And I, I was giving it a bit of thought after watching the movie and analyzing it, and I think it's a problem with the film, to be honest. I'm I'm finding it because of something like that, the story is not, the film version of the story anyway, is not what it could have been or should have been. Um, that's why anyone listening to this podcast, really, if you want to study the psychological thriller, also read the novel Primal Fear. And this goes to a point that we get a lot on the podcast, right? Why do we study films? Well, we're getting a good look at the global structure here of a psychological thriller but it doesn't replace studying novels. Okay, so let's look at the hero at the mercy of the villain innovation here in Primal Fear. The hat mob scene, hero at the mercy of the villain, is the core scene of the thriller. And usually a story builds to this one scene, but in Primal Fear, Vale has been at Roy's mercy from the time they meet, right from the beginning. There are a couple of obvious scenes to point to, like, for example, when Roy physically attacks Vale in the interrogation room. But to limit this core scene to that one point in time would be kind of missing the point of the film. In a way, this whole story can be seen as one big hero at the mercy of the villain scene. Now let's look at the global value shift and global stakes. What does damnation mean in the value shift? 
Well, it can mean that the physical self is in jeopardy. For example, in Dracula, Lucy becomes a vampire or an undead. But in more modern stories, it has more to do with the character's soul than their physical state of being. What it is, is a living hell. It's a fate worse than death. For example, in The Fundamentals of Caring that we looked at uh, in another season, we saw Ben having to live with the knowledge that he had a role in his son's death. I mean, come on, when you know that you contributed to your child's death, that is a living hell. Ben's own death for him would have been a mercy because he'd be out of his misery. He wouldn't have to live with that. So what's at stake here is Martin Vale's soul. Yes, he's physically at risk sometimes, but really when you look at the 15 core scenes, you can see him slipping towards spiritual damnation, not physical death. Now, there are a couple of plot holes in the film. The videotape is a major element in the story, but uh, you know it's fraught with problems. And for me, this is a huge weakness in the story. And I'm curious to see now how this plays out in the novel, because I'm not quite finished it yet. But in a story like this, with a huge revelation at the end, when we get that key piece of information at the end of the story, the audience's mind instantly just spirals back over everything that they've been told so far. And when it's done properly, there should be a whole new understanding of the story. Like, for example, in The Sixth Sense, as soon as we find out that the Bruce Willis character is actually dead, that changes everything, and it's so satisfying. Yes, I think it does work in Primal Fear, but not really as well as it should in the film. And that's because there's just too many loose ends with this video thing. In the beginning hook, we see Captain Abel Stenner go directly to the archbishop's video cabinet and pull out the key sermon video. He's not randomly looking around. It's a deliberate action with a close-up on him pulling that video out. It's as though he's checking to see if that particular video is there. But then the story cuts away from that, and it's forgotten about until the midpoint shift when Alex tells Martin what the archbishop has been up to. Vale then goes to the scene of the crime, finds the video with ease. And if you're going to watch the video, take a particular look at that scene because it is not a working scene. There's no turning point. He steals it, then gets it admitted as evidence into the trial, but he is never reprimanded for having stolen evidence or for not disclosing the information when he got it. It's, it's all very bizarre. Anyway, so there's lots of great stuff to learn here from the film, but more so the novel. Okay, so I'm going to jump in and look at the internal genre that, as Valerie has talked about, does appear to be broken, which I think affects the whole film. So last time we looked at a thriller was in season four with Rear Window, where I examined the role of the internal genre and how it plays within a thriller. So unlike its ingredient genres, action, crime, and horror, a thriller story requires the protagonist to experience an internal arc in order for the story to work. Sean writes, the thriller is all about one individual negotiating a complex world, living it to the limits of human existence, and usually triumphing over seemingly overwhelming forces of antagonism. In order to do that, they must change. And this internal change for the protagonist becomes a convention, and it's integrated as a means of turning the plot, which means that their internal genre directly affects whether or not the protagonist defeats the villain. So in a prescriptive tale, the internal change is either the thing that they need or it can give them access to the thing they need to overcome the villain. In a cautionary tale, like Primal Fear, where the hero does not triumph over antagonism, their internal genre arc is a key aspect to that reason. And it seems to me to be even more imperative that this change is clear in a cautionary tale so that we can understand why they fail. Because if a thriller really is all about one individual negotiating a complex world and their failure to negotiate it well allows death and injustice to triumph, then it seems that that failure is really what the story is largely about. When it comes to the controlling idea and theme, the external and internal genres are codependent. They're only meaningful when they're combined. So when the internal genre is broken, the controlling idea and theme is broken. And when that happens, the viewer's satisfaction is lucky to be found. So for me, this is the major problem with Primal Fear. Martin Vale's character is all over the damn place. Trying to follow his internal elements is like trying to follow a pinball. For example, let's look at his character. 
Is he selfish or is he altruistic? Does he have a solid moral code that he's following, you know, even if he breaks and bends the rules a little bit? Or is it really about whatever serves him at the time? Is he, you know, an ends justifies the means kind of guy? Here's a clip of him speaking to the journalist in the opening. Let's say you have a client who you know is guilty. No, don't even start with that. Our justice system doesn't care about that and neither do I. Every defendant, no matter who he is, regardless of what he's done, has the right to the best defense his attorney can provide, period. So where were you with the truth? Truth? How do you mean? I'm not sure how many ways there are to mean it. You think there's only one? There is only one. One that Marty, hold still, please. My version of it, the one I create in the minds of those 12 men and women sitting on a jury. You know, if you want, you could call it something else. The uh, the illusion of truth, if you want, it's up to you. Let's look at his thought. We know that he's arrogant and that he thinks he's the best, that he's right, he's going to win, he can't lose, yada, yada, yada. But what about his belief systems? He tells the journalist that he left the DA years back due to it that it conflicted with his morality, which is a pretty big plot element to bring up for it not to matter. Let's check out what he says to the journalist here. You go to Las Vegas? Yeah. No, I don't go to Vegas. Why do you think I don't go to Vegas? Marty, it's late. I think that we should both just get up and Why go. gamble with money when you can gamble with people's lives? That was a joke. All right, I'll tell you. I believe in the notion that people are innocent until proven guilty. I believe in that notion because I choose to believe in the basic goodness of people. I choose to believe that not all crimes are committed by bad people. And I try to understand that some very, very good people do some very bad things. You know, when I was was working for Shaughnessy, I did something very, very bad. Maybe illegal. I was a... um, prosecutor then this thing that I did it was, uh, was very upset by it I decided I'd leave so I left I became a, a, a defending attorney irony being that everyone assumes I'm fucking lying anyhow <laughs> so I made myself this little promise that um, I would reserve my lies for other than my public life you print any of this I'll sue your fucking ass Now, clearly he doesn't know the truth about Aaron, um, but that wasn't supposed to matter to him anyway, right? Because who cares if he's innocent? And he learns that in the end. So that fits well with a revelation arc. But because we learn that truth in the final scene of the film as the resolution, we don't see him take any action on it, either by applying it positively with wisdom or surrendering to it in a way. It's kind of like falling back into cognitive dissonance. So because we don't get that piece of the arc, it feels more like disillusionment to the viewer. But something about that is off too. And in his fortune section of Friedman's framework, we know that Martin Vale, he's rich and that that is really important to him. So he's never really at risk of losing any of that, unlike Janet. And yet by the end, when he does learn the truth, it feels like that selling out, right? He gets more prestige maybe for winning, but it's meaningless because he's been duped the whole time. So again, it feels like this pinball thing, right? Ping, he's arrogant and doesn't know the truth. Ping, he's looking for the truth and working hard to help an innocent kid because he believes that he didn't do it. Ping, he doesn't care if his clients are innocent. Ping, he believes in the Constitution, innocent until proven guilty. Ping, ping. So it's just, it's kind of exhausting just to try to follow him. I felt the same way. Martin just seems like a caricature of a principled lawyer, I guess that just says most like on the nose stuff I've ever heard. Yeah. So like in the verdict, we have the redemption arc. So he's super unlikable at the beginning, but it's consistent and it builds. So just pick one. Like we don't care if you're likable or not, but just pick one and be that thing all the way. So when it comes to Martin Vale, the big question for me came down to, is he starting at selfishness masters altruism or is he reformed from this troubled past and now he abides his own moral code, even if it bends the rules? And then when Valerie pointed out those thematic elements of being two-faced, the hypocrisy, having that different public versus private, that really made a lot of sense. And I really dig that as a notion of a theme for a cautionary tale. 
But the problem here is even in being two-faced and wishy-washy, the filmmakers missed the mark with Martin Vale. I was like, is he supposed to be the Bruce Wayne and Batman, right? Oh, he's the shallow playboy by day and the dark defender of justice by night, where the player is really an act, but deep down he cares and he's righting wrongs. Or is it all meant to be self-serving? And it's just, it's not clear at all. So if Martin Vale's internal elements had adhered more closely to a specific pattern of meaning rather than this Jackson Pollock fest that we get here, I really think it could have worked. And it would have been on theme, which would have helped with that gigantic hole that I'm feeling right now in the big meta why of this cautionary tale. And I don't know how to feel about it because I don't know how the protagonist feels about it. You know, what mattered to him the entire time and therefore what matters to him now. So to me, maybe that's the cautionary tale. A fate worse than death occurs when your values, thought, character, and motives are inconsistent and constantly changing to the point when you don't even know why and when you're lying to yourself. That rings true from that big meta why sense, but you know, it still doesn't make for a satisfying story. And for me, for a story to work, you've got to have both. So what can we as writers learn from this? Well, it depends on a couple things. Are you trying to craft a first draft or are you evaluating an existing draft? Also, are you a plotter or a pantser? These are things I always take into account when I'm giving advice. Here's the way that my brain walks through it from a plotter trying to craft a first draft perspective. Now, bear in mind, I'm going to make a lot of assumptions for the sake of the example, so you're going to want to adjust it for your own model. Here's what my brain does. Number one, what's the global genre? Okay, so let's say I know that I want to tell some kind of crime story, courtroom drama about a gruesome murder with a crazy twist. Cool. Okay, thriller. Number two, what is the major convention and obligatory scene of a thriller? Well, we know we have to have the hero, victim, villain, and it's always a good idea to start off with your villain and your force of antagonism. Great. I want to have a character who's concealing a fake multiple personality disorder. So from here, I could think about your victim and your hero. So who are they? How do they connect to the villain? And what's that core moment in the scene? So for the thriller, it's going to be the hero at the mercy of the villain. And I can brainstorm ideas all around that. So number three, I need to ask myself, do I want to tell a prescriptive or a cautionary tale? Basically, does the story end positively or negatively? Knowing this is essential for pairing with the right internal genre. In this case, let's say I know that I want to tell a cautionary tale. The villain is going to fool everyone, including the hero, and reveal it at the end. So number four, therefore, which internal genre would best fit that protagonist in order to achieve this ending? Which one's going to best fit the fool who's been duped all along? So let's think about the internal genres that end negatively. We have a status pathetic arc. Status tragic, worldview disillusionment, worldview revelation sometimes, morality punitive, and morality testing surrender. So next, I would suggest try some genres on your protagonist and see how they feel. How would they need to be at the end of the story? How would this change directly impact the global thriller plot? How then would they need to begin the story? And what changes would occur in the global genre that would intersect with that internal genre? Hey, Kim. Yes. This is, I love that you're doing this. It's really interesting. I, I completely see where you're coming from here. I don't know why they chose to represent Vale the way they did. And I'm like you, I'm not convinced that they did a good job of it. And the novel is really different. So I'm curious to see now how William Deal handled it all. But I am starting to form a hypothesis about psychological thrillers. And like, I have no idea if this is actually going to pan out or not. <laughs> so we'll see. But I'm suspecting that the psychological thriller, we're going to see it paired often with the worldview revelation. And that the revelation at the end of the story is the thing that will tip us off as to whether the character in question, whether it was, you know, the, the protagonist or antagonist or whoever it was, is actually sane or insane. So I love what you did here. And this is helping me form, you're giving shape to my thoughts as to what I'm, I'm suspecting I will see as I continue my study. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That. I'm glad it's helpful. Can I just add, too, that what you have said about the question so far, and I know you've got another number five question you want to get to, is helping me think through so much about the other podcast that I'm doing, the Masterwork <laughs> Experiment, and how to analyze the masterwork that we're working with. And you've given me a big and important clue, which I will talk about in the next episode of the Masterwork <laughs> Experiment. So thank you very much for that. Oh, good. Yeah. 
Yeah, so this is totally the way my brain like walks through this when I'm trying to figure things out. So I do this for myself and I do this for clients and it's kind of just the, yeah, just stepping through it and seeing like what are the options and how can we kind of narrow down depending on what our goals are. So good. I think that's awesome. And I'm and Valerie, I am super interested in what you find as that answer because when it comes to a revelation story, getting the truth, the knowledge, and that information is only part of that arc. And so it's interesting to me to end on that and rather than giving us additional time to see them make a decision based on that. So that's part of what makes that satisfying or not to me. So it'll be interesting to see it and how that plays out. So number five is once you kind of figure out what you're working with, we want to reverse engineer Friedman's framework. So let's take the worldview revelation example. This one, we go from ignorance, mass is knowledge. They're going to be an expert at the beginning of the story. And we have no reason to doubt that they know what they're talking about and neither do they. They have no reason to doubt themselves either. And then throughout the story, they're going to get little opposite of red herrings, right? Little clues here or there, things that they should probably notice, but they don't because they're so sure that they're right. And then eventually they're going to get that big twist of information that says, nope, you are absolutely 100% wrong. And then they're going to have to deal with that and then figure out where to go to from there. So again, if you pick out any one of the arcs, morality punitive, a testing surrender, a disillusionment, and you look at where do they need to begin so you can back up the character as much as you want at the beginning and then give them those shifts over the spine of the story till you get to that real core event about their internal genre. And then the whole time you're going to be layering that with your external genre, in this case, the global thriller story. Ultimately, you're going to want to narrow all your ideas down and pick one and you're going to make that decision. Number six is draft the global thriller story intentionally while anchoring it into this internal genre you've chosen for your protagonist. So you're going to make a decision, you're going to stick with it, and get the draft out. Then number seven, you're going to evaluate that draft. Does it work? From here, you can put on your story grid tools, put them to work, determine how to change it, how to calibrate it, to make sure your global thriller genre and that companion internal genre are really working together to really get that controlling idea or theme out that really resonates with you. One thing that became clear to me as I was jotting down these steps was the specificity of the protagonist's wants and needs. That is precisely what is missing from Martin Vale's character. What did he really want and what did he really need? What were his objects of desire and what were his goals? What was his global essential action? The inconsistency of this aspect of his character on that micro level directly translated to that meh feeling that I had on that global level and vice versa. So like I said, there's a bunch of awesome tools that you can put to use to figure out your internal genre and how it's going to pair with your external genre. I wanted to point you to a Fundamental Friday post that I wrote recently on writing a global internal genre story that works, the link to which is going to be in the show notes. And in there, I give a lot of really interesting pairings, which can help you even if you're writing a global external genre with an internal genre as your companion. So check that out and see if you can find any more things to help you. That was genius, Kim. I am learning so much from you, and I'm sitting here feeling just sort of embarrassed by how shallowly I went into this movie myself. <laughs> but let me oh, just <laughs> let me just <laughs> let me just go into that non-detailed level that that I found. It is one of those stories that I thoroughly enjoyed right up to the end, and then I felt cheated. And if it had been a book, I would have thrown it across the room. Here's a relevant comment that I got uh, from the film critic at the Washington Post who said back in the day when this movie came out, the special twist, which Paramount Pictures has implored critics not to divulge, redefines the story completely. It also ruins everything. That's exactly how I felt. About the novel that the film is based on, Kirkus Reviews said, and so the story goes, tick-tocking along with clever, challenging courtroom scenes, filling it out until the verdict arrives, and with it, one last bombshell. A big, efficient thriller machine, slick and melodramatic, with every cog whirring at top speed, but with little Elan Vital. It'll make a great movie, though. Well, it didn't, in my view. The Metacritic score on this movie is pretty dismal. It's 47 out of 100. And that kind of suggests that I'm not alone in this feeling. Obviously, everybody else on the podcast also agrees that I am not alone in this feeling. I can't help noting that terms like Elan Vital are just the sort of vague, meaningless feedback that you get in your writer's critique group. 
only it's in French, so it sounds fancy. The reviewer at Kirkus is just saying, it really didn't work for me, but he's, or she, I don't know who it was, was unable to say why not, or couldn't be bothered. Now, I think, Kim, you and Valerie have done a fantastic job of being more specific, and so you're much more valuable to writers. Now, I'm focusing on novels this season, and I did not take the time to read this novel. I looked at the what's available for free, the beginning part on Amazon, and I read a couple of reviews about it, and a couple of differences leaped out at me. Vale in the novel is a complete slob. He's described as dressing really bizarrely and, and kind of poorly, both in and out of the courtroom. And so to me, substituting Richard Gere in the movie, who's this handsome guy in Armani suits, and that changed the character considerably to me. It makes him look like he has a lot more to lose in worldly terms. And to me, speaking of those pings that you mentioned going through the pinball machine, that pinged status or possibly morality to me as the internal genre. At no point during the story did I think to myself, wow, this guy is really missing some key information that he should be paying attention to. There was no ping to me that this was going to be a revelation plot until the very last scene, which felt to me like completely unforeshadowed in the rest of the movie. Now, it's true that if I had taken time to do a more careful or second viewing, I might have seen a little foreshadowing. I think Leslie detected some. But what the heck? It's a thriller. I don't pick up a thriller to go deep or study closely or think all that hard. I, I pick up a thriller when I do in order to escape. Another thing in the novel, he had this stunning victory over the city of Chicago, and that is what made the powers that be so angry at him that they force him to take Aaron Stampler's defense pro bono, which would be painful to him because he values his status and his money and stuff. Whereas in the movie, he seeks the job out because it will add to his fame. So he's so sure that he can win a not guilty verdict on purely circumstantial evidence that he never even considers an insanity plea. And this suggests, you know, pride goeth before a fall and all that. And that feels, again, like status or morality, not worldview to me. Now, as to the big meta why that Kim was discussing, I was reminded of a user review I once read, probably on IMDb somewhere, about the police procedural TV show Criminal Minds. It's a show that's been on for 15 years. I kind of like it. This viewer's sincere takeaway from the show, get this, was that it teaches us how dangerously full of serial killers the world is and how we must be ever vigilant and protect our children. That was her big meta why for what's essentially a fantasy show about infallible investigators with their own private jet bringing these monstrous evildoers to justice at a rate of 22 per year over the course of 15 years. If the big meta why defines what we're drawn to in different story types, which I believe is how Kim defines it, well, surely we're not drawn to a psychological thriller because we need to be aware of multiple personality disordered killers all around us. So I had to ask, like the archbishop himself, we may say that there's an exorcising quality or a purifying quality to these stories, but really, don't we just watch them to get off? so to speak. <laughs> well, I mean, like you, Anne, I pick up thrillers for entertainment. I, I really do. I think they're fantastic. And I'm wondering if maybe we're not really meant to know exactly how to feel. I mean, I agree with what Kim said, and the, the film certainly has weaknesses. Absolutely. But maybe, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, maybe we're supposed to feel destabilized by the ending rather than have an exact feeling that we're supposed to feel. It's an open-ended film, which, I mean, I think is more common in films from other countries, but it's certainly not typical of Hollywood films. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good point. And I've been thinking a little bit about that. And I think I, I differ with you. I know you're playing devil's advocate here, but in those not-so-Hollywood type stories and, and in a lot of foreign movies, the ambiguous ending is usually set up by ambiguity throughout, right? It invites us to muse over what really happened. We leave the movie theater thinking about what our own feelings would be. So one instance that fits this model is the final scene of the movie Call Me By Your Name. Now, in that movie, the young protagonist has learned that his older lover has decided to get married. And he sits staring into the fireplace for an unbroken shot, lasting something like two full minutes. It's like an eternity in movie time. It's, it's a great scene. Now, the acting in it, the slight facial expression acting, 
is such that you can see changes of emotion on the protagonist's face, but it's up to you to bring your own feelings and conclusions to that story. Will he suffer heartbreak for long? Is he deciding to put his foot down and get the guy back? Is he thinking that the whole affair was a mistake? Or is he maybe embracing everything that he learned during his you know, summer of love? And that open ending leaves us with the question, what would you feel? It asks us to come up with the answer and we leave feeling free to mull it over and decide. But in the case of Primal Fear, we're set up for a thriller. And thrillers on the whole are supposed to leave us satisfied at an ending where justice is done or something like that. They leave ambiguity, if any, to the protagonist's internal arc. And as Kim has clearly pointed out, that's all muddied up in this story. I could see that Martin Vale was damned by the surprising revelation that came at the end, but very little leading up to that ending made it feel like it was inevitable. It was surprising, but it didn't feel inevitable. It raised questions that I can't answer from within my own emotions or beliefs. It raised questions like, well, if Roy was so smart, how come he didn't start with insanity? If he's so smart, why does he show his hand in the final scene? I mean, I get that he was manipulating the guy and taking sadistic pleasure in it, but it still didn't make any sense. I couldn't think of any real reasons for that ending scene except to add a jarring twist for the viewer. How does Roy know so much about Martin Vale's ego from the outset that he's able to play him from their very first meeting? I mean, he's a 19-year-old kid. Sure, Martin Vale's a famous lawyer, but how did he put all that together in that first meeting? And Here's another thing. Why was it called Primal Fear? I know they retained the title because the book was a bestseller, but they seem to have lost any reason for using that title, which was really strange to me. Now, maybe answers are in there. Maybe if I go back over the movie, which you know I freely admit I wasn't engaged enough in the story to do, I might see some of the subtle setups that I felt were missing. But here's the thing. It's a primarily external genre story with all the Hollywood trappings, and it didn't do its job. Now, earlier, Valerie, you talked about how easy it is to fall into the trap of thinking that this story is about justice, essentially a crime and courtroom story. And my quibble is that if it's easy to fall into that trap, and if we have to trot out the editor's six core questions in order to grasp it, hasn't it failed? I think we all agree it kind of failed. Certainly, there are stories that work because they make us work, and they signal to us from the outset that they aren't going to hand us everything on a platter. And this movie started out handing us everything on a platter, and then I feel like it reneged on expectations. This, to me, is story grid 101 stuff, right? Nail your external and internal genres and your story will work. Fiddle around with them too much, and you wind up with a Metacritic score of 47. I really appreciate this emphasis, Anne, because analyzing the stories, these stories, the way we do, is not about getting an A in story grid or proving how smart we are. It's really about understanding what makes a story work or not so we can write better stories. So Jari, what did you find in Primal Fear? We've got the trifecta of psychopaths in this uh, movie lawyers, politicians, and priests. And all three of them are, <laughs> are in the top 10 professions with the most psychopaths and dare I say the most narcissists. <clears throat> um, after viewing this film, we know the dangers of making assumptions, but knowing you, I'm going to assume that present company is accepted where lawyers are concerned. And people <laughs> love to hate us, until they need us. Oh yeah, of course. Of course, present company excluded. This is the perfect setup, although for the type of love that we're going to see in Primal Fear, because there's not a lot of love story going on. But the two things I did pick up on are ex-lovers and self-love. And there is nothing better than seeing two type A, never want to lose or be vulnerable people do the mating dance. And this is Martin and Janet. The stereotype of it is what really amps this up as a Power of ten. I thought you liked it better like this. That way you don't have to look at the person. Year after year. I mean, look at me. Come on, let's go find a bar you can still smoke. Thanks for the invite, but I don't like one night stands all that much. We saw each other for months. It was a one night stand, Marty. It just lasted six months. Can you feel the sexual tension in the air? How about those lines? And I think this is a great example, although cheesy, of a lover's fail to reunite scene. And it's similar to the love story convention of the lovers 
reunite scene. Yet this reunion must fail or the tension between the ex-lovers won't make the desired impact. And I think in this case, it's about that tension because as you find out later, they're going to go against each other in the courtroom. And this scene also shows us the kind of people Martin and Janet are. It's no surprise that this is early in the story to put the idea in our heads that both Martin and Janet will not be pushed around and they feel something for each other. And that is like the perfect line for her to say and the perfect zinger to say about Martin because he's just emotionally unavailable and he likely loves himself more than any other person on the world since he's such a narcissist and you know what, a cocky snot. So to me, ex-lovers and self-love are intertwined in this story. I think both have to be present for the tension between Martin and Janet to hit those powers of 10 that Valerie talked about in Waking Ned Divine. What strikes me as brilliant about this ex-lover kind of scene or this dynamic is the rapid fire dialogue between Martin and Janet. And this is like my favorite part of the movie. I love the interactions between Martin and Janet. And when they meet at the murder scene is just really great. And the whole opening of this movie sets the stage for how self-love and ego are going to play out. Well, it's like the best part of the movie for me is this first part. And what's even better, it's within the first seven minutes you get introduced to the victim, the villain, the hero, the whole cast of characters. And in that sense, it's actually really well done. It's also stellar that the crime happens within the first 10 minutes. And I think that is something that, that really does pique your interest. But kind of after this, I got lost in the weeds. In terms of self-love or narcissism, I think the best example of this is the first meeting between Martin and Aaron when Aaron is first arrested. When I woke up, I was covered in blood. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I got scared. I heard sirens, so I ran. Well, I know, I know how it looks, Miss Velvet. I swear. Yeah, I don't need you to try to convince me, Aaron. I just want you to answer my question. But, but I didn't do this. You gotta believe me. No, I don't have to believe you. I don't care. I'm your attorney, which means I am your mother, your father, your best friend, and your priest. In other words, I don't want you talking to anyone but me from now on. Not, not the cops, not the press, not the other guys in the cells here. Nobody, without my permission. You understand? Yeah. Yes, yes, I do. All right. Now the important stuff. What's your suit size? Man, oh man. Think much about yourself, Martin? Think you got it all figured out? I hope so, because it's about to get a lot more interesting when you pat yourself on the back attitude, coupled with your ego, is about ready to get you in trouble. And actually, this is sort of a great setup for what is to come, but I just felt that a lot of this stuff felt flat. They just get after it right away with retort after retort, as well as Martin's steadfast belief that Janet wanted this case because he is the defense lawyer. I mean, such an egotistical, like, God, he just, ugh, I hate this guy. But let's get back to the self-love that the Shaughnessy character has, because he's both a lawyer and a politician, so he's like a double threat. Shaughnessy just oozes crook. Well, you know what people think. I think this great city runs itself. I think it gets up and goes to work and climbs into bed at night just like we do. They're unaware of what it takes to make sure the whole damn thing doesn't break down. Crime, fires, riots, the goddamn water pipes bursting under the city. Christ, what a fucking mess that was. And who does the water commissioner call? The contractor who built it? No, he calls me. They all call me. They call me because I keep the peace. That's my job. If the city doesn't burn because I won't permit it, I'm the great negotiator. But you think people get that? The truth is, I don't care. Dumb bastards don't even vote. All they want to do is eat, sleep, watch TV, and occasionally fuck their wives. Guess we should all thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. John, you need some new material. What a tool. It's also... Super fun to see the back and forth on this cheesy dialogue that only narcissistic characters can sling back and forth to each other. And it makes it just more slimy and evil. I mean, you, you really start to hate both these characters. Uh, like I said, I'm not a big fan of this movie. I think Edward Norton did a fantastic job acting, but I, I just don't think he can save it. What I do like and what I do think is well done is the, tw the tension between uh, Martin and Janet. And while not a masterclass in how to write ex-lover tension in a story, it does give us some scene types that I think must be 
in an ex-lover subplot, which again is different than a love, you know, lovers meet and, you know, the whole uh, love genre, because this really can't carry the film. So the first one is lovers fail to reunite. And we all know that there's the lovers reunite scene in every love story, but they can't reunite or the tension won't be there. So they must fail. There has to be one lover wants it more. And and you kind of get this a little bit with Martin. The tension needs to spill out. And I think this is done really well in the, some of the courtroom scenes. And then they also have to show that they're actually happier without the other person or happier without you and show, I really don't want you. And yet they sort of do, but they never get together. Really the key here is if you're going to have ex-lover tension in your story, it has to be somewhat believable that they're going to get back together, but in the end they can't. And that's what creates the tension. And I also think it's just sort of obvious that they can't get back together. And, you know, maybe there should be a bunch of attempts, but in the end, it's got to be doomed. And I do think that an ex-lover kind of subplot tension is made a lot better if one of them is more narcissistic than the other. And if they're both narcissistic, then that's, uh, that's even better. It's clear in here that Martin loves himself more than anyone. And I think that's his downfall. Maybe if he wasn't so in love with himself, maybe we'd feel a little sorry for him that he loses in the end, but he's just not redeeming at all. And, you know, I didn't feel sorry for him. I thought, you know what, you got what you got, what you deserve about all the love I could pull out of this one this time. Well, that's more than I noticed. Thank you, Jari. You shined a light on a portion of the love hate spectrum that we don't normally see. So what I want to talk about are the messages within the story and kind of pick up on what some others uh, have said today. So I struggled with the lack of consistency in the internal genre and the message that we were getting. And I think it's made worse by the factual problems with respect to the legal facts. Now, Vale's position at the end makes it seem as though there was nothing he could do. His hands are tied because of double jeopardy protections and attorney-client privilege. Now, are we meant to question the wisdom of these fundamental protections? I'm not really sure. But we see Vale dejected and powerless at the end of the story because it appears he's unable to act on the information that would prevent a dangerous criminal from roaming the streets. What's missing here is that there are procedures to prevent this and a clear duty for attorneys not to assist people in committing or covering up crimes. An attorney in Vale's position has not just options, but very specific duties. Now, personally, I have a problem with cautionary tales that don't seem that useful. Vale cuts corners and breaks the rules, either believing he's serving justice or trying to win the case or both. It turned out he did win, but he wasn't serving justice. He was just a tool. Now, when the truth is revealed, he doesn't do something to fix the problem. He believes he's stuck in damnation. And I think my problem, my real problem with this story is that it seems calculated to appeal to biases that are not very deep under the surface. Lawyers and politicians are greedy and self-serving, and priests take advantage of vulnerable people who are seeking help. Now that does happen, but here it feels very cliche, even for the mid-1990s, And unfortunate because it seems calculated to make us feel less safe than circumstances warranted in a time when crime rates were actually dropping. Now, again, it's not enough to say that this story doesn't reflect reality, in part because of what Anne often reminds us, that stories aren't real life and characters aren't real people. But why might the storyteller have chosen this ending rather than showing Vale sacrifice his pride to do the right thing? Are the filmmakers ignorant about how these things work? Is it only to inform us that this is a risk in our criminal justice system? Well, obviously, I don't really know what was going on in the mind of the filmmakers, but it makes me even more aware of how important it is for us to get clear on the type of story we want to tell and the message about life and the world that we want to send. 
Now, I'm also not sure where the filmmakers wanted this story to live on the spectrum of stories from serious ones with a message to those that are almost exclusively for entertainment. But consider whether we should reserve psychological thrillers for a deeper, more meaningful message about the world rather than simple thrills with a twist. Nicely stated. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners, and this week's question comes to us from Izzy Chowdhury. Izzy asks, literary fiction, we all know it's a genre in itself, but can it have a standard core scene? My story is character-led, including the setting, Pakistan, the family home, which is also a character. There is a climax, an abduction, and a resolution. But does this muddle the genre? Anne is going to answer that question for us today. Well, I'm going to give it a try. Hi, Izzy. It's a great question, an interesting one. What constitutes literary fiction is a vexed question. And I will invite you and any other interested listeners to Google the term and read a world of opinions that differ on the subject. All of them are problematic to some extent, but we can at least turn to the story grid genre clover to get a little more clarity on your specific question. In story grid terms, literary falls on the style leaf. Sean has defined literary style in the past as a sensibility of high art as pronounced by a particular intelligentsia. You almost need to say that with your eyebrows up. A sensibility of high art. And he includes in the category poetry, minimalism, meta, and postmodern works. He's also said elsewhere that in the fiction publishing world, there's a commercial side of the house and a literary side, and that the commercial side outsells the literary side and supports it, while the literary side confers distinction or status. However, and this is very important, even with those distinctions in mind, he says that successful literary novels do adhere to the expectations of one content genre or another, as opposed to style genre. We talk about this all the time here on The Roundtable, and Kim's focus on internal genre stories last season gave us a close look at three indie arthouse films, which are roughly the cinematic analog of literary novels, and all three of them had clear, identifiable character arcs and straightforward plots. I'll put links to those in the show notes. Granted, these were all quiet stories, personal internal genre stories, where the stakes aren't life and death, but something like success and failure, or ignorance and wisdom, or selfishness and altruism. So it's not quite accurate in story grid terms to say that literary is a genre in itself. Literary isn't a content genre, but barring absurdist and postmodern offerings, a good literary novel will have a content genre. It might not be super obvious, but it will reveal a clear genre if you study it. Now, personally, I enjoy reading fiction that's a little more on the literary side. And these novels do tend to favor the internal genres, as Kim is studying, but they aren't by any means defined by those internal genres. In the past year or two, on top of the stories with primary worldview, status, and morality plots, I have read novels that were a crime story, a love story, a war story, and a society story, all of which were classed as literary novels. Now, as to your own story's genre, you would have to answer some basic questions. And I think if you go back and review the seven questions that Kim looked at in this episode, you will get there. How does your protagonist change from beginning to end? What do they want? What do they have to gain and lose? Who's the antagonist or what is the antagonistic force and what does it want? How does it operate to block the forward movement of the protagonist towards their goals? Now, answering these questions will help you zero in on your content genres. You mentioned some specifics about your story and genres where setting, as you mentioned, plays as almost a character in the story include war, society, and Western. Stories where a family home is like a central figure might fall into the society domestic genre. I'm not really sure, but that's something to think about. Neither of those characteristics muddies your genre. What muddies your genre is not selecting and adhering to the expectations of a content genre or two, an internal and an external. In that case, no matter how lovely your prose or literary your prose or how evocative your settings, your story is likely to leave your reader confused and disappointed. But if you do select and then meet the expectations of both an internal and an external genre, no matter how literary or plain your style, you will write a story that works for its target audience and won't be muddy at all. 
Thank you, Anne, and thank you, Izzy, for your great question. If you have a question about psychological thrillers or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you so much, Valerie, Jari, Anne, and Kim for excellent editorial insights into primal fear. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of what the psychological thriller is and how it works. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com, and I can't recommend enough that you go and check it out because these show notes in particular today are phenomenal. Now, if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can also be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time as Jari explores the love story with a look at Ang Lee's 1995 film, Sense and Sensibility. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.